0: I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. I am more than a maker. I'm more than an outdoorsman. More than a protector. Than a graduate.
1: Than a princess. An athlete. A pastor. I am more than a
0: warrior. I am, I, am
1: I am Choctaw proud.
2: I am Choctaw proud.
1: I am Choctaw proud. We are the Choctaw Nation and together we are more.
0: What might the first world indigenous sky world space stations look like? We think in circles with no beginning or end. We go into space as a human right and right of self-determination. We go into space for development, exploration, and cultural preservation. These are the words and the vision of Dan Hawk of the Oneida Nation and principal scientist at United First Nations Planetary Defense. Hello to you, Dan, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk.
1: Well, hi Rachel. It's great to be here.
0: Thank you, Dan. And I, I'm really thrilled to visit with you today and for our guests to learn about your work at the United First Nations Planetary Defense. But first tell us where you live and about where you grew up.
1: Well, I'm Oneida. I grew up on the Oneida Indian Reservation in Wisconsin. Um, I went to school uh, on the reservation with them when I was really, really little. Um, yeah. and then you know graduated from West Peer High School. 1970.
0: Yeah, and where are you now? I think you're in Colorado today,
1: but normally you live up north, right? Well, um, today I'm in Colorado, and I I, I normally live on the Oneida Indian Reservation in Wisconsin.
0: Great, we love our Wisconsin friends. So listeners, here's some info about Dan via excerpts from AIAA.org. Dan served in the Navy as a nuclear reactor operator on two fast attack submarines. While working with the Wisconsin Space Grant, Dan and Dr. Eileen Yinkst founded the First Nations Launch and the Tethered Aerostat Program. Following WSGC, Dan supported the Montana Space Grant, ensuring the Salish Kootenai Tribal College was uh, successful and that BisonSat was launched on October 8, 2015. Following BisonSat, Dan worked with the U.S. Department of State to remove Native Americans from the international traffic and arms regulation list. And prior to BisonSat, Dan helped the El Paso Community College with two nanoracks ISS experiments and launched a payload rock-on payload on a suborbital Terrier Orion in 2009. Dan is a recognized Amazon Black Earth expert with NASA, NOAA, and the DOE. In the latter, Dan made one ton of high CEC carbon and it's mitigating Radio cesium 137 on Bikini Atoll, Republic of the Marshall Islands. Dan currently supports Space Traffic Management, Lunar Surface Innovation Consortium, Green Aero Industrial Hemp Rocket Fuel Research, NASA Office of Tribal Affairs, and the new National Native American Space Grant. Dan is an international committee member for the National Space Society and is a member of the United Nations Indigenous Committee. He is on a number of indigenous and space panels like the Indigenous Research Center, MIT Space Enabled Group and Anthropogenic Environmental Impact on Space Traffic (laughs) on March 2022. Uh, Dan addressed the United Nations Legal Subcommittee of the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space by providing the history-making general exchange of views. Dan has been appointed to lead the Lunar Surface Innovation Consortium, Lunar Dust Interoperability and Standards Focus Group. He is currently working with the U.S. Occupational Safety and Health Administration to prevent dust explosions in mines and factories. And Dan is currently working with NASA to waive satellite export controls to First Nations people, Canada. In cooperation with many entities and institutions, the first tribal sovereignty data blockchain, J-Treaty Satellite, is being designed. Well, that's an impressive background, Dan. (laughs) Way to make us all look like we're not doing anything. Um, Amongst all of this experience, however, is an overarching goal. What is that goal? The goal
1: is to get Indigenous world populations into space. So it's not just Native Americans. When I first approached the United Nations about getting Native Americans into space, they first told me that you don't don't have it right. You you got it wrong. What you're saying is not right. And I'm going like, what's not right about having Native Americans go into space? But what they told me was that it is really about a world indigenous right so and that's how their, their statement came out to be that you know it is a it is a, a right of access for everyone, in other words, uh, space is for everyone it is. It is an yes. equal access right to space, um, but part of that equal access right to space is about as we ta- as we talked about is a human right to go into space. It is a right of self-determination. And for and for tribal people, it is about future cultural preservation. Uh, we may have to go to space um, in order to serve our uh, to 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 preserve our cultural um, um, capabilities, activities, and you know, uh, biobanks on the moon, um, those kinds of things, you know, uh, going to the moon and Mars the Artemis program to stay, right? And we're where are we as indigenous people around the world? Where's our, our ability to, to, to preserve our culture, our culture now and into the future, right? So we ha- must have that opportunity, uh, whether we believe that we ought to have it or not, or um, how would you say, uh, whether we believe that or not. We, if we don't have that opportunity, we don't have that ability to preserve our culture from the, from the space point of view. And that's where I'm coming from.
0: Absolutely. And I think you kind of answered my next question, which was, why should Native Americans go into space? Is there anything else you'd like to add to that?
1: Okay. And outside of the, outside of the two things that we consider space, that we do in space, right? One is that of of space development. The other one is that of space exploration, which you which you alluded to at the very beginning, right? So the the ability for the, us to explore things, go to the moon, let's say to support Artemis program, going to, to the moon and Mars uh, as explorers, that's one thing, right? Maybe it's cultural preservation, but the other most important part that faces us today is that of, of space, development and what that means is that for us is to our ability um, to monitor our resources from space right whether it's that of mining operations or water water rights or timber all, all of, our, of our rights that are given to us are not given to us session. that's wrong way that's wrong thing to say these are our rights inherently, right? So right, it is, right. It is, So we say, so let's go, we go back and we say there's two things. One might say there's a, a right to self-determination, and then there's a right of self-determination. And so two is the wrong way. Two is the, two is the wrong word to say in that because that means that we have to be given something when we already had it, the, when the we already right yeah of, the right, right. So, so the right of self determination is that we already inherently had that right of self determination. We already had that right as indigenous people from from uh, from millennia ago. In other words, from time immemorial, right? So we've had that right of self determination. So when we talk about monitoring our our resources from space, that is about our inherent rights of the things that we've had. That we we that it exists since time immemorial, our lands, you know, or the buffalo roam, you know, our our hunting and gathering capabilities. And I'm not saying rights because they they were inherent, right? So, uh, but if we if we say what what is meant today in today's language, our our hunting and gathering rights, our ceded territories, our reservations, our federal lands, um, our our, um, our forestry. All right, so. Uh, we, one of the original missions in space, um, I think it was maybe a Gemini mission that looked down upon the, the, uh, the Menominee Indian Reservation and the Menominee Sustainable Forest and called it the Green Gem because it stuck out. It was it was a, a sustainable forest that they could see and it, they called it a Green Gem. So we we are noticed uh, from space our indigenous yeah. people right so getting back to the development part right monitoring our resources, why is that important, we all know why are monitoring our resources resources are important. Absolutely but, but well what, what, what's in front of us today climate change, so we know that from you know from the White House point of view right, we have um, you know the President is saying, you know, we have a new space policy that new space policy includes. Climate change. That, that if we have our satellite, our tribal satellites, our indigenous satellites that are being able, we are able to see for ourselves, to make mm-hmm. a decision for ourselves firsthand, our knowledge by our satellites, monitoring climate change to say to our leaders that give provide that information that we have, that it's ours, right? I, we're talking about digital data sovereignty here. Then now we have the ability to make decisions with the power of our own tools, the power of our own data, but our our acknowledgement from that from space, um, that space development. So there's more to this now, right? Yeah. So space development space development also means things like um, the 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 new the new issues, right? The, the new sovereignty. What is what is tribal sovereignty today? Uh, you know, it's, it's a land sovereignty, is space sovereignty putting up tribal sa- tribal satellites is about sovereignty in space right
2: mm-hmm. and,
1: and partly because you know the satellites go all around the world we see everything we see other indigenous populations we see encroachment on south america you know our our, our brazilian uh, indigenous friends and and you know um things like um you know, our land protectors that are being killed down there. So, you know, we've been just recently beginning, you know, information about that, how we're able to help them. But space sovereignty, putting up our own satellites, right, as Indigenous people, we have new questions that arise. Mm -hmm. Uh, And those questions are about how we as Indigenous people and Native Native American people, how we support First Nations people, when that satellite goes around Canada, the Nepalese people, you know, the, the Marshallese people that I helped with Ato, right? um, the Kinieto, uh, right, our, our um, Amazonian friends, right, in Brazil that are now, uh, you know, having problems with encroachment and, you know, the land, as land protectors, they're being hunted and they're being killed. We talked about what our satellites can do so it's not just about monitoring resources it's about other things too it's about national security right so we talk about what is national security regarding indigenous people what is our world security issues right so we can have satellites in space as development space development in space to be able to monitor things like our borders our ports um our transportation systems our, our, you know, plus all our other rights, you know, our our water rights, our timber rights, our grazing rights, all of those kinds of rights that are, that are inherent to us. Mm -hmm. All our federal lands, we can see things like pollution, right? We can see things that are happening um, with our migration, you know, with migration of our our animals and those things that are, you know, hunting and gathering capabilities. But we had talked about originally, you know, in our first time we had talked about things like elevating um, murder missing indigenous women to uh, sustainable development goal 8.7, you know, uh, which is uh, slavery from space. So when we look at well, what would happen if you put a tribal government satellite in space, where does that put us? That puts us in the seat of the United Nations, where we are not right currently right because we're talking about world things now we're talking about not just native american things we're talking about world things we're talking about how we're able to secure our borders uh, from one nation to another um mexico to united states united states to canada as an example our responsibility to other indigenous people like like the amazonian people um and and their encroachment uh their illegal mining operations their, their their illegal deforestation, those kinds of things that are hurting them. We talk about, um, back to the national security again, we have the ability to monitor our bridges, our dams, Um, you know, we know, we know that we know that this is a problem because before in, in, in August of 2015, the, the Gold King Mine blew out. And in, uh, in October yeah. we launched Bison Sack. So, you know, here's where the, the mine was had polluted the Animas River and went down into Lake Powell and, and polluted um, territory in the Navajo Nation. We know that we have 500,000 mines that are abandoned. How do we monitor those? Many of those affect in our part of Indian territories. So we monitor mines. So that's that's also a national security issue. So we have when we put up a satellite in space. From a tribal point of view, right? What are all of the things that are 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 um, that affect the world, right? Yeah, they impact the world. What? What in Native American territories, what do we do now in the United States from from Native Americans, our 574 federally recognized tribes, what do we do now that, that impact the world, right? We can say we do things locally that may impact the world, but if we put up indigenous satellites, we will impact the world. We do, we will impact the world. We are our our national security issues that are between the United States and our, the National Reconnaissance Office, an example, um, they are of importance, not just the United States, but throughout the world. Um, And that's kind of what I'm getting at. So when we talk about space exploration and going to the moon and Mars, that's one thing. But when we talk about space development, the monitoring of our resources, the you know our ability to support and help national security, our ability to help and support all world indigenous populations, not just by what we do, but what we but but for them to emulate us for 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 other indigenous in other words, we're showing other Indigenous people the way into space. Uh, how is it that you're building this satellite? How is it that you're launching this satellite? How is it that you are able to do, um, you know, to impact the, the idea of, of tribal space sovereignty? What is that? What is that all about? And, and what I'm saying is that we, we understand, we have a, a very good understanding of, of tribal sovereignty on the ground, right? And, you know, all those things like water rights, like winter's rights as an example, how that impacts tribal governments. We know that we have some tribal governments that are really involved with airspace, like, you know, providing drone, drone capability, drone airspace as an example, um, or, or, or that of airspace in general from like the, an airplane kind of point of view, right? right? But what we do not know, but what we do not know is how tribal space sovereignty is going to impact us or the rest of the world. And so that is why, you know, we're starting to write the, you know, I'm starting to write the um, the handbook of indigenous space law. Uh, yeah, I necessary. mean,
0: basically <laughs> you are a pioneer in this way because no one's done this before for the most part, right? Uh, tell us about, and I do want to hear more about that in a moment as well. Tell us about the United First Nations planetary defense.
1: Well, okay. So, you know, it's it is a blue ocean strategy kind of concept. So a blue ocean strategy is what? It's something that does not exist. You're making it. And so one of the things that are important to indigenous people, right? And to all people is, is Earth, right? We are supposed to be caretakers of Earth, we're to be caretakers of Earth's caretakers, of airspace and caretakers of space, right, in general, because we're talking about space debris in a minute. But um, when we, we talk about our, our caretaker responsibility to what United First Nation Planetary Defense first started out to be was that of how is it that Native American, what it was that Native American people can do, right, regarding mm-hmm. space. And the first thing that we can do is we can help support that of asteroid defense, right? So United First Nations Planetary Defense started out as the ability to support asteroid defense in a way that that, that is different. Because what is if you were to ask the question, you say, Dan, what, what are we doing for asteroid defense? Now, what is America doing for asteroid defense? And I'm going to say, what we do is we, we, we monitor, we watch. That's it. There is no rocket on a launch pad right now that that has the ability to launch and to impact um, an asteroid, an inbound asteroid. That's a little scary. It is is scary, but think about this. If you were able to slow down an asteroid by 10 minutes, you'd miss the entirety of the earth in its natural rotation around the sun, that's Mm -hmm. it. So if you could slow down an asteroid or you could deflect an asteroid, after the after it after the the earth has gone by and its natural rotation around the sun either before or after and the asteroid misses Earth didn't it miss earth we then then no impact right right well if you have an asteroid like like that that happened in you know 2013 in Chelyabinsk, right so you had this 20 meter asteroid impact Russia right nobody saw it coming boom yeah. you know um, the point The point that I'm getting at is that there are 200,000 asteroids that are that are um, under 300 meters in diameter that have not been classified yet. And most of them coming from from the sun can't see right, so the point here that i'm getting at is that the United States does not have and I have to say the world does not have the ability to to, if we found, if we, if we had an inbound asteroid right now and we knew, and we knew it was going to impact Earth because we can calculate the Earth going around the sun and where that, that asteroid, ha, that asteroid has to intersect Earth at the, at the time that it's in yeah. going around the sun. If we knew that there was an asteroid that was going to impact Earth, we have no way of mitigating it right now with the exception of what? Okay, so, so the, that's how United First Nations Planetary Defense was, was created. And it was created, out of, the, okay. created, created out of the J Treaty too. It was the first time that a, 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 probably mm-hmm. a business, and I'm saying words, a business, right? A business yeah. is created out of a treaty. So it's the J Treaty mm-hmm. of 1794 between the United States and Canada, where the, the line of Canada does not exist because of commerce between Indian people, between the First Nations and Native American people. That's the j Treaty of 1794. Huh. So the whole idea here, then, Rachel, was to put Native American people and First Nations people together for the first time ever, right? In, yeah. in the business, United First Nations Planetary Defense is that stemming from the Treaty of 1794. But the so so what, what is what is the plan, right? So what's the plan that we're, we're talking about for mitigating? asteroids if it doesn't exist well that plan is to take um, a rocket lab electron rocket which has a kick stage to take the kick stage and turn it into an impactor so you don't have to set aside a rocket right you don't have to put a rocket on the launch pad all you have to do is is prepare the kick stage to to be an impactor to to slam into that asteroid just to slow it down just enough so that the earth can, can continue around its natural orbit around the sun and then the, the, the slow it up, slow it enough, just so that so that what happens is that it will, you know, the asteroid will miss the impact of earth. Um, that's called an impactor, but there are two other ways of doing that. We have laser ablation, which you can, so you take the same kick stage, you can put a laser on it and you can laser that asteroid, and when you laser it, what happens is that the ejection of the particles 90 deg- or 180 degrees of that, then the asteroid would go away, go away from that laser. Yes, yeah. you're as you're lasering it, so it well, ejects that? particles out and then it moves, right? So that's yeah. that's laser ablation. That's basically you're moving the satellite, you're not slowing it down, right? And the other one is what we call, um, uh, pulverize it so the other method is pulverize it so pulverize it is what that's placing penetrators onto that onto that kick stage where the penetrators are ejected into um, the asteroid and it peels it away like an onion but that that is meant to uh, break it up to less than 10 meters in size and then what happens then is it enters the Earth's atmosphere, then the Earth's atmosphere would then burn it up. So those are the three methods of, of asteroid defense.
0: I like all of those,
1: by the way, especially yeah, the last two, though. Well, <laughs> you, know, you, you know, the country that we're, we're relying on right now for asteroid defense for the larger asteroids is China. Oh, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're, they have the long march rockets, which they tend to want to go up and they basically go up against that asteroid and they would nudge it. They would nudge it out of the way. That's what uh, China would, would, would.
0: Yeah. Who would have thought? I wasn't aware that we are vulnerable to asteroids. I mean, yes, to some degree, but I would have thought that there was something in place already that could counter.
1: No. The and asteroid that, getting and closer that, to Earth. And that that's the reason for United First Nations Planetary Defense. But you can go further than that. You can say, well, wait a minute, Dan. You know, uh, we're native people, right? We have, we're caretakers of the Earth. What about planetary defense in a different way? So, what is the planetary defense that we're talking about? We're talking about. How do you take care of the oceans, your, your planetary defense of the ocean, planetary defense of, of Earth, right? Yeah, I not think. just
0: the sky.
1: Yeah. Right, right. So, not just asteroids, but also now we're talking about. Things like what I did in Bikini Atoll, right? Being able to provide the carbon to mitigate the radio cesium 137 so the plants would grow radioactive free. So the bananas would grow radioactive free so you can eat it so you can coconuts instead of coconut crabs. Easy. Would so eat, easy. They eat the radioactive coconuts and so now you have radioactive radio cesium 137 coconut crabs, right? They're radioactive. Um, wow. But the point, the point here though, Rachel, is that during, you know, after World War II, United States came to our our indigenous population in the Marshallese Islands. They took the indigenous people off the islands and then they detonated 69 nuclear test bombs. 69 nuclear bombs were detonated. And now the, the coral islands, they're atolls, the coral islands are contaminated with strontium 90, cobalt 60, americium 241, plutonium 239, I think plutonium 238, um, and, and and a myriad of other. Um, radioisotopes, including radio cesium one thirty seven. So and so now, so now the the government says, wait a minute, well, you know, we're not testing anymore. You can have your land back. You can have your atolls back. You can have. We'll your- drink the water. Yeah, you can drink the water. You 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 have your land back now. So, but what I'm what I'm getting at here is that uh, here is was an opportunity for indigenous people like myself to work with Amazon Black Earth. As an indigenous Oneida, to help the Marshallese people with their their radioactive problem, hmm. and, and yeah. so here's another opportunity for indigenous people to support other world indigenous people. That's incredible. Well, and and some I have a total
0: layperson question here because we're talking. Um, there's different countries in space, obviously. Who owns space?
1: Uh, Spaces, spaces for everyone, you know, uh, yeah. no one owns space. And so that was brought up with the United Nations regarding indigenous people has equal access to uh, equal access rights to space is that no one owns space. Um, unfortunately, though, you know, there are problems that indigenous people need to be aware of. Right, our tribal governments need to be aware of. They can, and because you can go to a tribal government and say, you know, we'll talk about space. When I originally did this, right, I or was originally talking about space. They said, well, yeah, we, you know, we have a building over here for rent. We have a room for rent. We have, you know, we have space over here. We have space over there. They weren't talking about the same space that I was different talking about. Different kind of <laughs> It's a different kind of space, right? So wow. our, our whole mind frame regarding sp- tribal space sovereignty needs to change we need yes. to understand Think that, big you know, we're talking about we're talking about space and and, and and I have to say that there's a lot of things that happen in space that we don't we are not aware of for us to do those things for us to protect other people like our, our indigenous people who are being you know hunted and murdered and in, 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 in South America as an example as land protectors. Or for us to understand and use um, a spatial, um, uh, a spatial um, um, indigenous intelligence, so that we're able to to uh, look after uh, murdered, missing indigenous women.
0: Well, and you're definitely hitting a hot topic with me. I have guests that have come on to that represent MMIP, MMIW, and that sort of thing, and so I'm really excited to tag them in this episode so that they can learn more about. Where the futures headed? And some of us may not even be around anymore. By the time that happens, I have faith that it's going to happen sooner than later, these projects you're working on and the benefits of going into space and being able to help with missing and murdered indigenous women and so on. So well, this is also exciting well, and very different than anything I had heard of before about our going to space.
1: It, it's about awareness, right? So, when we're talking about spatial intelligence from our own tribal satellites, that's one thing. whether we can do it or not that's another okay, obviously, because it, because there's a lot there's a lot of effort that needs to go into that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But the point is is that if you're, if you're building a satellite specifically for a payload um, for the spatial intelligence of, of looking for murder missing indigenous women or to pre- make prevention of that. That's, a, that's an important awareness that has not been made at the United Nations level in, 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 hmm. in the sense that I'm addressing through the Sustainable Development Goal of 8.7. Until you know, Dan just, came along. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the point is this, you know, what is it that we can do, right? So, okay, so when we talk about what you can do, Rachel, you're doing what you're doing. We're going to talk about what I can do, right? So what is it that I can do? You know, I, yeah. I can I can help with you know, the, you know the the you know let's say example the, the coding or you know the um you know the the physical as- aspects of of a payload or the physical a- aspects of you know the physics of, of, of a satellite as an example. But I have to tell you, you know, when I when I first put up bison set, and I mentioned to you this before, right? So being being Oneida, the other instructors at the Salish Kootenai Tribal College were not. Native American. And when I went to them and I told them, I said, you know, we put, when we put this satellite in space, it's going to change the way that we see space. Native Americans will see space. It's about tribal sovereignty, right?
0: Mm-hmm. And it's, hey,
1: hey, I'm just an instructor. I'm here to, to teach our tribal students how to code. I'm tr- here to teach our tribal students how to, you know, like to characterize a, a solar cell for um, one of our solar panels, as an example. Right. So, we can we teach those things but what we can't teach them is about tribal sovereignty in space because that's not something we know we, we're not native right True. you are native and so what I and I understood this and I knew it right away that as soon as that satellite was launched in 2015 and placed into space it changed the way that we ought to view tribal sovereignty in space from that point on from October 8 2015 was a game changer for us and yeah. I knew it I knew it because, okay, so the idea here that I'm getting back to murder missing indigenous women. So what my very first, my very first non-disclosure agreement was with Northrop Grumman on a satellite antenna that I don't I really can't talk about the antenna itself, but about, a satellite, about, about a satellite antenna that I was considering specifically to support murder, missing Indigenous women. My first, very first non-disclosure agreement with Northrop Grumman was about murder, missing Indigenous women, and uh, it being able for the detection of that through the specific antenna that they had. In other words, it's technology that we could use for that for that purpose. Right. Um, and you know that understanding. You know, that understanding of that one particular antenna from that one company on a satellite for a specific purpose of murdering and women it was like, for me, like, what is it, what is it that we can do from space? Why, it, so you get back to the tribal leader again, why is it important for us to go this, but why should we go to space? Why is it that we should do that? And, and and I'm saying not only just for all the sovereignty reasons, but there are reasons that we could use to support other things that we do. Whether it's you know uh, monitoring mining operations that we disagree with, we disagree with this mining operation. We can't stop it, but we can monitor it. We can see if it's leaching, or we can see you know the operations of. We can see if it's doing things that it's not supposed to be doing that we may not be able to see otherwise. We've been prevented, we've been prevented from doing a lot of things, from from pipelines as an example, like DAPL as an example, uh, you know, the Dakota Access Pipeline and all these other pipelines that we're talking about that we we may contest, but we may not have any control over it, but we surely can monitor it, right? And it's the same thing that I'm getting at here with with murder and Indigenous women is that, we may have some ability to make some prevention and a lot of awareness of this very horrible situation. And, um, and, and that's what I'm getting at. This, uh, we may not be, it may not be the silver bullet, but what I'm saying to you is that it, it is definitely one of those things that would raise significant awareness, not only here, but around the world. And that's what I'm saying.
0: Absolutely. And sometimes it's the sum of all the parts and that could be a very big part, right? So, you know, on your LinkedIn page, you promoted the following tribal space sovereignty is in need of tribal space lawyers consider amplifying our voice in space by donating to the Ole Miss Space Law Indigenous Scholarship Fund. So it looks like Ole Miss and University of Mississippi, possibly possibly others are offering scholarships in this realm, which is super exciting. And my daughter is applying to law schools right now as we speak. I wish I could twist her arm into going into Indigenous space law, but I can't even imagine what kind of laws pertain to space on the Indigenous side. You know, what does that look like?
1: Okay so my my very first question that I'm going to say to your daughter is like what is our responsibility as native american people to the rest of the indigenous world when we see things happening from space that we are not supposed to see ooh good like, good question like like encroachment like like illegal deforestation like illegal mining on an indigenous peoples. Yeah,
0: that, that don't
1: have the ability, don't, don't have the protections that we have as Native American people, right. And mm-hmm. we we sometimes we don't have that protection either, right. Um, but in other countries, so, so you have to understand what a space faring, what is a space faring nation, right. So we can say that, you know, the United States is a space faring nation. But then we look at and we look at Native American people within the United States. So I'm gonna ask that Rachel, are our are are native people spacefaring? And you're probably gonna like, <laughs> no, no, um, not re- no, not really. You know, right? I mean, I'm, uh, do we have our own spaceport, which I'm working on? Do we have our own ability to launch, which I'm working on? Do we have our own satellite systems, which what I'm working on? So what I'm getting at here is that if you look at Africa as an example, there are, there are some sp- countries in, in Africa where they are spacefaring but you have a lot of other nations that are not spacefaring. So you have no, you have non-spacefaring countries that have indigenous people within them that would maybe maybe would like to be spacefaring but they themselves cannot be spacefaring because their country is not spacefaring. Mm-hmm. So we can be spacefaring because we're in a country that's spacefaring. We just need to get there. we just need to have right. tribal governments. we need your tribal leaders saying, hey wait a minute. What Diana say, you know, we there's, why are we not having our own satellites to monitor our own resources and to monitor climate change, right. to monitor habitats like, you know, caribou migrations and, you know, our ring seals and why is our polar bears doing what they're doing and those kinds of things. We should be having that monitoring capability on our own. That That's, that, that's about data sovereignty. Space sovereignty is data sovereignty. It's our, our satellite, our data, our information, nobody else's. So getting back to that first question again, what is our responsibility as Native American people to other indigenous world populations? Getting back to the emulations, we get into space, other other indigenous people around the world can say, wait a minute now, Native American people are in space. How did they do it? How did they Mm -hmm. get into space? So it's about that. But the other part of it is, is that issue of spacefaring, right? So how can we help other indigenous populations that are in a country that are not spacefaring, but our indigenous populations within that country that are not spacefaring? So what I'm saying is that there are a lot of legal questions that have not been asked or if I've asked them the answers, are they gonna come from Dan Hawk, or are they gonna come from our collective tribal leaders that say, these are questions that as, as tribal leaders around the 574 federally recognized tribes in the United States have the ability to say what the answer is right. on how we're going to treat other indigenous people around the world. When we see things happening to them from our satellites our tribal satellites and now this also happens to do things like you know we just had these issues with starlink as an example and ukraine right you know Mm -hmm. our satellites which because we have the ability to do both commercial and government frequencies which is which is special um we have the ability to see things and do things that other other companies cannot do because we're 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 a part of the United States where we have this federal tribal trust relationship. Um, what does that right. mean, you know, to other world indigenous populations?
0: Right. So interesting. The light bulb has come on for multiple things as you've talked about the benefits and uh, the fact that other countries may not have the infrastructure that we actually have. So why are we not taking advantage of that as Native Americans as well to have our own space program? So, so does this native space program mean that there would be education for today and future generations of Native American kids in, in the field, I would assume, right?
1: Well, I, I have to say that there was a gentleman that I worked with, you know, through the First Nation launch, like we mentioned here, you know, previously. But he's, a, he's Ojibwe. He's, he's uh, uh, from Canada, Right. So it just happens to be that you're First Nations people in Canada, right? And they're now living in the United States. So this young man says, I'm going to apply to NASA, First Nations people, Canada. It could be be First Nations Oneida in Canada, living in, in America, applying to go to NASA and you know what NASA's response to him was you know
0: you live in Canada you're you're not yeah
1: you're not you're not you're not eligible yeah isn't that crazy (laughs) we can't hire you
0: we can't I didn't know that was a requirement okay but still he's first nations
1: he's first nations and so what I'm getting at here is that you know this J tree issue right yeah our ability to be Indian, Native people across that border does not exist in the way that it should exist. When right. it gets back, to, it gets back to that idea that I'm going to tell you about what we, what you mentioned before about our, our, our satellite export controls for First Nation people and in, in the State Department are not wanting to waiver that. But, but, but the point here is that this young man, I helped him get a job at Boeing, right? So here okay. he's working at Boeing, right? Yeah not work at nasa because he's native american from canada i'm so um, sorry nasa does yeah. not
0: want your talent <laughs> yeah and, and, i see okay. what you're
1: saying it's there's got to be some change there there's got to be some change there and you know um it's upsetting it's very upsetting very much yeah very and, much
0: um, well i'm i'm really excited though about i noticed that in our Biskinik, which is our choctaw paper uh, that they were talking about i didn't get to read the whole article but doing a space program for our Choctaw kids and I think that's fantastic because you know but it's not that we have to wait forever because I think right now there are jobs available for American Indian population
1: in this field right well okay so here's the thing about Artemis program this is what I'm arguing about right so this is what you know I'm supposed to go to 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 NASA headquarters, Washington D.C., in April, and there's this, this ethics workshop, right? Yeah. Um, but this is this is what I have to say about this. So it's okay for First Nations people to come down to the United States and we can build a satellite here and we can launch it in in, in the United States territory. I cannot go to if I were to go to Canada and I were to help them, I would, I would be, I would be in violation of export control and they put me in jail, right? Okay. I, I can't I can't do that. But what I can do um, you know, when it comes to what we see, what are our job opportunities? Like, like I mentioned to you about this young man um, uh, working at Boeing, right? So when we look at our reservations and Artemis program, we have a lot of companies that can do a lot of things, um, You know, for supporting going to the moon and Mars to stay. But those companies do not really exist on reservations, those space facilities don't exist on reservations, and I, I, I attribute yeah. it to a couple of things. First of all, you know, if you, if you have, we have a lot of great STEM scholars that are in aerospace that are native. You know, we can see that throughout the you know the American Union Science and Engineering Society. They have the engineers and that, those kinds of things. They get they get they get their degree, they leave the reservation, and they go elsewhere. They go to other leading companies, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, as an example, mm. Ball Aerospace, and just in, in, in a bunch of others, um, you know, Northrop Grumman, as I mentioned earlier. The, the point is, is that they have left the reservation. They've taken their talent and they've left. And what I'm getting at with the Artemis program is for our ability for travel leaders to say, hey, you know, we, we can do these things. Yeah. We, we can create a space facility. We can help space business. And we can do that in a way that this federal tribal tr- trust relationship is important. And in a way that, you know, we look at set-asides, let's say, through an Office of Tribal Affairs at NASA, the same way that we have an Office of Tribal Affairs at the Department of Revenue or, or other places where we have places that exist for Native American people that don't exist in NASA Um, and so that that bothers me okay so what I'm getting at here is that if we had the ability to to have uh, space opportunities on our reservation now we got skilled jobs we have the ability to support Artemis so going to the moon to the going to the moon and Mars to stay with the support of Native people is really important um, because that it doesn't exist right now Mm-hmm. We're basically, we're basically non-existent. Um, you know, the mission rollout of NASA does not include, just Native people were basically missed on that rollout. You know, the other, other minority people were there, but the presence of Native people were not, and that mm. bothers me. And yeah. so what I'm saying is that if we had space facilities and reservations, then we would be able to bring those space jobs to reservations so the, the, our our tribal students when they become STEM scholars in, in aerospace and engineering they don't have to leave the reservation to go elsewhere they can right. stay on the reservation because now oh by the way we're working on this lander and we have mm-hmm. this tribe and this tribe and this tribe and we're all working together on this lander we're all working together on this rover we're all working mm-hmm. together on this habitat because our tribal peoples can do that. We can do that. We have the ability to do that. We have, we have the land, we have the resources, we have the talent, we have the ability to do that. We just have not been given what? We have not been given the opportunity to do these things. Absolutely, it's crazy, crazy to think that native people can't build land. It's crazy to think that we can't build a rover. If we're given the opportunity and we're given the mission to do something, NASA says, you, you, you got this rover mission. What do you think tribal people would do? You know Our leaders would come together and say, okay, we can build that rover. We're gonna do this, 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 and this, and who's we're gonna hire this, 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 and we're gonna bring yeah. in special air, aerospace industry if we need to, but we can get this done. But the opportunity does not yet exist for us. And that opportunity will exist because that's what I'm pushing for. I'm pushing for those opportunities to happen. Uh, You know, I have to tell you, you know, uh, the First Nation launch was a better ending for me. Even though I started, it was because I created some really significant challenges for our tribal students. And NASA wanted to dummy down those those challenges, and I got really upset. Because really what they were trying to say is that our Native students or not smart enough to do these challenges. And I disagree with that. I disagree mm. with that heavily, that, you know, if we're given the opportunity, we can rise to the challenge to do things. Amen. Um, and we should not, no, no company, no no one should come to us and dummy down opportunities. Um, you know, oh, we're going to give you a rover, but we're going to give you a little rover, or we're going to give you an easy rover. Yeah, I know. You know, give us something that that's hard give us the difficult ones give us a difficult task because we can meet those challenges and that's what i that's what i say right so other people might disagree with me
0: i completely agree and does anyone much less than a native american person want to consider themselves as being a charity case or like a we dummied this down for you i mean nobody wants that it's like no nope. We, we have pride in ourselves. Give us the challenge. How far along are you in the process? What has been accomplished with this program so far and what do you still have yet to, to get to?
1: Well, you know, um, with the Lunar Surface Innovation Consortium, I'm, I'm a sub-lead, right, for lunar dust uh, interoperability. So um, I'm heavily involved with lunar dust, um, you know, going back to the moon and Mars this day, you know, it's about dusts, right, for, for us as people don't understand and realize how important the lunar dust is and, and, and being able to create a, a lunar economy. That's what they want to create, a lunar economy. So it's all about, for me, the understanding that you have to build launch pads for our landers. It's because when you're building, when, when you don't build a launch pad and you have a lander landing, that the dust is going to because the size of our engines, they're going to e- eject all of this. I'm not gonna say all, all, all is the wrong word, all, wrong word. It, when the lander lands on the moon, the, the engine blast ejecta of the lunar dust and regolith, a lot of it will enter space. It'll go into space. Our, our dust will go into space. It'll, co- it'll cause an environmental problem. And I'm aware of that. And I understand that. That's why, you know, lunar um, landing paths are important. Um, whether we're going to do that or accomplish that, that's another thing, that's another, that's another question. You know, we talk about, you know, I'm involved, like when we're writing, you know, the, the handbook of, of, of tribal space law. One of those things is, is tribal cultural heritage on other planetary bodies on the moon and Mars and, and, and asteroids. When we go, when the tribal people go to the moon and we, we leave things there, we move things there, we, we, we create experiments there, we do exploration there. That's our tribal cultural heritage there. What does that mean? And so I'm going to, I'm understanding, we have to under, realize that. And let's say we were to build two rovers, right? We built our tribal people, we built two rovers, we put one on the moon. That's cultural heritage. We put another rover on the moon. Is that cultural heritage or is that debris? And these are the questions that I have hmm. to 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 answer. Um, yeah, there's a lot I, of
0: I, planning going into this. I bet. Years well, I do. I do. I do, the,
1: I do the same thing now because we have to understand as, as indigenous people. If we're going to go to the moon, right? So people say, well, "Why we're we going to moon? We're going to go to moon to mine, right?" As an indigenous people, why do you agree with that? Why, why should we go to the moon? And Do you agree with them mining the moon? I say this, you know, that we are not going to be able to stop the rest of the world from going to the moon, to mine the moon, right? But what I can say from my point of view is that if I'm on the moon and I see something that I don't like, I have the ability to say something. I don't like the way that they are, are creating that tailing from that mine right? or leaving that kind of debris on the moon. And so we have the ability to say something if we're at the space table. If we are at the space table, we have the ability to say something. If we are not at the space table, we have no ability to say anything until after the fact, and then it's too late. And that's why, one of the reasons why I'm doing what I'm doing regarding uh, the lunar Surface Innovation Consortium is is to be a part of that monitoring process to say something, and that gets back to space debris, right? So we have working on spaceports, working on our own launch capability, working on our own satellites, but we have a space debris problem. It's an orbital space debris problem, right? So we can have space debris on the moon, which is space debris, but not orbital space debris. Orbital space debris is that that is around Earth. And we also have orbital space debris around our, our moon now, right? So we have debris circling around the moon in orbit, right? But in earth, we have a lot of space debris. So what is our responsibility as indigenous people, as caretakers of our orbital space? Do we have, the, do we have, a, do we have a caretaker responsibility for all of the debris around the earth? Right? So we have China's debris, we have Russia's debris, we have American debris, we have uh, you know debris from the European Space Agency, debris from 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 JAXA, from, from um, Japanese space exploration. Um, um, so what what I'm getting at here is that the question of tribal sovereignty at a time that we want to go into space, at a time that we're given a, not I'm not given this wrong word at a time that we have inherit right to go to space. We are also under the same right of wrongness of going into space at a time that we have a lot of orbital debris. So when we go into space, we launch it, we go, we put our satellite into space, we're tribal sovereignty, we got our tribal sovereignty satellite up, we're seeing the things that we need to see, we're seeing our climate change, we're seeing, you know, the injustices around the world. But, but, we're in the same field of debris, of all the other debris, plus all the other satellites up there. What is our, what is our responsibility now to debris of, of, of all the debris that's up there? We can say, well, it's Russia's debris it's their problem. It's China's debris it's their problem. It's United States debris, it's United States problem. Wait, wait a minute now. Are we not a part of the United States? Is that, is, that, is that our debris? You know, is that our right. debris too? Right? So it just happens to be that we're just now at a point to where we're starting to talk about active debris removal. One of the things that we're working on, that we should be working on, tribal government should be working on, is, Dan, you know, you why should we go to space? Well, one of the reasons why we should go to space is we should go up there to try to figure out what we need to do with the debris, with the debris, with the orbital debris, getting it. Disposing of it, reutilizing it, and that gets back to International Space Station. At the end of this decade, they're going to take this billion-dollar satellite, and they want to bring it into <laughs> bring it into our our our, our Earth orbit, uh, our, our Earth atmosphere, and burn it up. They want to burn it up. They want to burn up this huge space station over the Pacific Ocean, and whatever left of the remnants of it are going to end up in the bottom of the ocean. And what I'm saying is, wait a minute now, this does just not sound right, right? So we have to get back to the idea because they did it with MER, right? They did it with, you know, um, other space stations and they do it with satellites all the time. But we also know that our oceans are fragile. Right. So we have this problem with um, our ocean surface microlayer of the ocean and the lipid layers and, you know, the, all the runoff from, you know, the, the, the ditches to the, to the creeks to the rivers and to the ocean. And now we have um, copepod pod problems, right? We have that. We have this idea that our oceans are really fragile right now. We have all this plastic and whales are digesting, you know, plastics and they can't digest their food and they're dying and all, all kinds of things that are happening. We should not. We should not as indigenous people, allow the International Space Station to just be burned up and and in and, and like I said, the debris be a part of the of, of our of our ocean. And, and we we can keep the International Space Station up and we can reutilize it through what we call on-surface assembly and manufacturing. This OSAM. Uh, so a part of OSAM is a part of the, our, our space traffic management, our space traffic control, our ability to keep the International Space Up, space station up and being able to go after um dismantling you know the 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 solar panels as an example being able to reutilizing it instead of just burning it up in other words doing something with it if we're going to go recycling the international space station this should be an indigenous (laughs) thing you know our tribal leaders should be at nasa's doorstep knocking on their door saying hey we're not burning up the ISS.
0: We're not going to do right.
1: it. We're not going to we can
0: it. We can help you with it. And that's the and thing, we- like, it's something I didn't realize was a thing out there that out in the ether, there's like, uh, you know, parts, old parts, old pieces of equipment floating around out there, right? Stuff I didn't really think about very much until you told me. And so part of, it sounds like your endeavors here is we can help be that cleanup crew and to recycle and to ensure that we're not doing stuff like dumping stuff
1: in the oceans after we're, we don't know what else to do with it. Yeah, and you know, the whole point is now uh, this all has, you know, these issues have gone through, you know, the Senate and I believe now through through Congress to to uh, a portion of a large amount of money for active debris removal. But where are our, our indigenous people here at, at, in, in front of Congress saying, wait a minute now, you know, some of that money should be going to tribal governments set aside for you know, our uh, our ability to create, um, you know, uh, space facilities specifically for active debris removal, right? So yeah, it's one of the things. Awesome. We're, we're, we're working on that. We're working on the command and control center for that mm. and th- those kinds of things. But but the point is, is that um, we are not at the space table, Rachel. Mm. Our, our tribal leaders are not there. We, mm. we are not there. We need to be there. We need to be at NASA's doorstep. We need to be uh, at the Artemis doorstep we need to be at the International Space Station doorstep because we typically have been left behind and, and, and yeah I hate to say and I hate to say this but I, I as as you know as we very beginning you pointed out, right? Um, that we you know we we've been prevented uh, monitoring our resources on purpose, right? Mm-hmm. And so we need to change drastically. Native people have to change drastically how we think. Um, and that yeah. is that we, we, we have to start thinking about space sovereignty, what it means, you know, how it is that if we're going to you know, the, uh, support the unified vision of space, because we have this unified vision of space. But I, what I'm saying is that unified vision of space does not exist if we're excluded, mm-hmm. doesn't exist. Yeah. We, need to be, we need to be included, and that is when we're going to have this unified vision of space. We go to the moon and Mars this day, we go there together. We do it together. And right now we don't have that togetherness. It's not there. Mm-hmm. And right. what, you know, it, it's, just, it's mind-boggling to me, to be honest with you. there's a lot of money in space. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you
1: know we, we see that you know with Artemis program, we're talking about a trillion dollar industry and it's going to get bigger. And what we need to do is understand that uh, if if I was to ask you of that trillion dollars, how much of that's going to Native American people? um, It would be very, very small amount of money. Sure, um, yeah. If if at all, you know. And Mm -hmm. so what I'm I'm saying here is that um, I feel that we're left behind on purpose. And I'm trying to change that—that that vision of getting to the point to where why why should we involve tribal governments? You know, what can they do? What can they offer? And I'm going to I'm going to say, getting back to the idea that you know if we're given if we're given the opportunity, we have a lot to offer. We just have not been given that opportunity, and we need tribal governments to to go after that opportunity. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Very interesting and well said, by the way, I'm we're cheering you on, man. And there's, you know, any of my listeners I know are going to be really excited to hear about this. And you and I talked about the Dust Bowl, which is something that piqued my interest because I've always been fascinated with the what, why, and how of the Dust Bowl. I remember watching the Ken Burns documentary on the topic. Surprisingly, it's called the Dust Bowl if anyone would like to check it out anyway so i'm why am i bringing up the dust bowl because believe it or not it does have something to do with this program uh so dan would you first share with us the what how and why of dust bowl and then how something like the dust bowl is taken into consideration
1: in what you're doing okay dust bowl is really important for a lot of different reasons i've actually had a teacher in in um uh, was it uh, in New York City. And she, she came to me and says, Dan, I never understood about the Dust Bowl and how important it was. And you've changed my mind about how I teach my eighth grade girls. Mm. Um, yeah. And, 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 and uh, what I'm saying here is this. Okay, so first of all, the Dust Bowl is important for it because it's local climate change. Really bad. Back in the 1930s, really bad. Okay, so how did this all start? It all started with, um, you know, the Homestead Act. So the home the home the, the 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 Homestead Act basically said we're going to take Native people, go put them on reservations, and all the land that's left we're going to give to settlers. That's basically basically what they did. And we're going to give the you settlers can can take this land and for a little bit of fee, and plus whatever the commission was for whatever the fee agent, whatever the agent was that. that that provided that, that plot of land. But part of that Homestead Act said, hey, you have to improve the land. So what did they do? They had to improve the land by plowing it. So over 400 million acres, 625,000 square miles from Texas to Canada, um, they, they plowed. They, they put native people on on the lands because they said that native people didn't know how to take care of the land, that farmers knew how to take care of the land. So what they did was that the farmers, the settlers went, they, they plowed up 400 million acres of land and they did it. They did it constantly, they constantly plowed and they plowed and they plowed. And during the same time, you have to understand that technology was increasing. So they went from like say four cylinder tractors to six cylinder tractors to eight cylinder tractors. They went from one plow, pulled behind a tractor and the plows got bigger, the tractors got bigger The you know, they got more power and they got tracks. And then they had from what iron wheels to to rubber wheels in 1936. In 19 in 1929, they had 200,000 tractors they were making per year. In 1932, they had 19,000. So, what, what happened during that time? So, people don't know. So, why did the stock market crash? Why did we have? Why did we have the depression? First of all, during the Dust Bowl, when they had this dust, they had huge sandstorms. Huge. Every other week, they had sandstorms, and they. Yeah. They were they were huge. They had reported sixteen thousand feet air, aircraft at the time. They they had dust landing on decks of ships three hundred miles out into the Atlantic Ocean, where they were sweeping the dust uh, dust from wow. Oklahoma off the off these ships three hundred miles out in the ocean. So what was the problem? So the, the, the first of all, the dust was what? What was made? The dust was made out of in 1935 in Kansas City. The dust was made out of. Um, in, in 19, um, 75% silica, 20% metals between aluminum and iron, and 5% was carbon. So what had happened after all this plowing and plowing and plowing that they did year after year after year, um, and to first to support the war effort in World War One to provide you know a grain and wheat to with the doughboys so World War One. So it was a war effort. So they they, they created all this, these you know all these, these uh, commodities from this from this land. And then so the dust the dust was important for understanding why that was so, because when you talk about five percent carbon left, what was happening was the carbon of the soil, the soil organic carbon, was being depleted. So if you take, if you take and understand that a plant is cellulosic, it's cellulose, cellulose is sugar. Sugar is carbon and water or hydrogen and oxygen. Carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen is sugar. So when you remove the carbon from the soil, you no longer have any root sugar. You don't have the ability for cellulosic growth of plants. You just didn't no no ability to do that. Yeah. Um, and so so what happened was that all this the, the farmers were given cart launch. You get a loan for your For your farm, you got a loan for your equipment. You got a loan for your tractor. You got a loan for your car. You got a loan for your barn. You got a loan for your cattle. And when there was no ability to grow anything, there was no ability for the farmer to pay their loan back. The stock market crashed. 1929. Mm. They, They basically just had lent out over all of the farms for that 400 million acres of land. They basically they lent out all their money. To, to support all the farmers. And at the time, they were even doing things, crazy things like, you know, they had gas, gasoline pumps that were pumping water out of the aquifers. So what was happening is that they were continuing to, to remove the water in a time in a dust bowl, right? So they removed the water using gasoline pumps, but they also had larger and larger tractors, and then they put lights on in 1936. So they were even able to plow at night. And they had people out there with lanterns at nighttime plowing at night because they plowed all the time all the time so, so the point is is that the stock market crashed the, the dust was um what we what i call electrified sand right so electric electrified silica but so people would breathe this in their lungs were full of sand they they basically died of uh, they weren't able to breathe because their their lungs were full of electrified sand. They called it dust pneumonia. Um, A million people were displaced. Thousands of people died during the Dust Bowl. And, And it's all about the fact that they didn't have any soil organic carbon left. But now you go further. Now, remember now native people were placed on Indian reservations to allow the farmers to plow. But at the time, and what we don't understand. You remember when we go to so 1929, stock market crash, we went through this period of what we would consider, um, let's say um, depression, right? So we're at the we, time of depression, because the stock market crashed, there was no money, the, the, the Dust Bowl was in effect. And we forget about the great flood of 1937 as an example, but now you have to understand what happened in 1939. So in 1939, Um, you know um, Nazi Germany invaded Poland I believe in 1939 and the rise of Hitler was because of the stock market crash of 1929 because at the time Hitler was was not in power he was talking about Jewish money in Germany and Jewish money then was understand that what we were talking about here is that. Hitler was rise to power because of the stock market crash in 29, because he predicted what was going to happen. And then and now when he did that, then people like, oh my gosh. And, and that, was his, that was his ability to rise to power was the stock market crash in 1929. And he blamed it on the Jews. And what the reality there was, that was his ability to grab hold of Nazi power. And then World War II came about. Now, Why is World War II important? Go back, to this, go back to the Dust Bowl again. 1935, um, we had this thing called, uh, or we, we, the United States understood that we were in very serious trouble in the Dust Bowl. So they created a conservation service, the Soil Conservation Service of 1935. So they were trying to figure out a way to get us out of the Dust Bowl before World War II. Yeah, they didn't even care about World War II in 1935. How do we get out of the Dust Bowl? Because all the carbon was depleted most of all the carbon was gone they couldn't couldn't support production of, of corn as an example no cellulose ability to do that the soil Conservation service says we're going to do several things we're going to be able to we're going to be able to buy some of the farmers land back we're going to plant trees This created the CCC which is a civilian Conservation Corps they went and they created park national parks and roads and they built dams they did all these things they they planted trees they they, they they created these things like um, you know shelter belts you know so that it prevented erosion of soil by placing trees along areas of, of, of separated farm fields as an example. They they did a lot of different things. That the soil Soil Conservation Service did to to, to get us out of Dust Bowl. Mm-hmm. But really, what got us out of the Dust Bowl was World War II, because they had, we had the, these, these these men mostly men were a part of this conservation corps and they were in a very rigid military type of framework in their mind of how they're right. gonna go about planting and, and and building roads and building bridges and building dams. It just happened to be that when World War II happened that the men were already a part of this conservation, uh, civilian, uh, civilian conservation corps, that they, were, they fit perfectly into the barrack style kind of, of regiment that was necessary to go into ah. world war ii and so that is when they when they went into world war ii then what happened then is that the farmers that were no longer able to support a farm because they couldn't grow anything they went to the factories they went to the war they went they they, they went they did the war after the world war ii so it was the conservation's the soil conservation service of 1935 and world war ii got us out of the dust bowl. Those are the two things that got us out of the dust bowl. Um, But unfortunately, the, you know, the the dust bowl um, did a lot of things. And one of the things that it did, local climate change again, right? So we can learn a lot from that. But actually, if you were looking, if you were looking in in, in, in the dust bowl and you look at some of the documents, one of the documents I came across actually said carbon climate change. Those three really? in a in a row in a row. Back then, we're talking in the 1930s. Even back then, yeah. Right. Okay. So you know, um, so climate change. Yeah. So there, you know, we know we we know now why Hitler came to power. We know we understand why the stock market crashed. We know we why why we went into depression. We know, and it was all because they put native american people on reservations and they said to the farmer you guys you guys know how to, to deal with this land you know how to make this land fertile and and to do these things and to grow crops and to support the war effort in reality they didn't they 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 didn't do it right you know the we know now right we know now <laughs> we know about now. those about those agricultural practices because those agricultural practices affect europe today because we went from till to no till, and within that little bit of time, from till to no till, within that 20 year stretch, as an example, has changed our climate in Europe. Huh. And, and which also impacted Pakistan, their, their perfect storm, their flooding that they had. Um, yeah. So we have to understand that what we do in America impacts Europe and what happens in Europe impacts Southeast Asia as an example. We have, we, as a native people, as an, we understand, is that all things are connected. Unfortunately, we don't, the rest of the world, the rest of the people that we that we connect with don't see that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that you have to ask the question, well, Dan, you're right. We, we we tilled up our land, we tilled up our land, we created this agricultural practice of tilling, of, of plowing. And now we're going to no-till. What effect does that have on our climate? Ah. Nobody asks these questions. These questions are important because we're right. talking about millions and millions of acres of land changes the impact of how we deal with climate from here to Europe and from Europe to South Asia.
0: And it all comes full circle.
1: It all comes full circle. Yeah. it's very because can, interesting because in the Northwest, we can see that what's happening in, in across uh, across the Bering Strait, we can see what's happening over there. And China is an example that's affecting the Northwest, we can see that. Mm-hmm. Um, Mercury is one of them. Mercury is one of them that we can see in our in our Northwest uh, Lakes, this Mercury from, from China. So mm-hmm. an example.
0: Yeah. Right. Well this was really exciting to get to hear about because again I'm kind of fascinated with the dust bowl and yeah. the reasoning behind it again that Ken Burns documentary is fantastic and when you do watch it listeners think of Dan and the hard work that he's doing today and and this podcast so I'm thrilled about the programs you're working on and my listeners and I will look forward to seeing the exciting results of your yeah. hard
1: work but well Ken um, Ken Ber- Burns program would change if he if he would uh, have interviewed me first he would he would have ah, thought- interesting
0: yeah maybe there should be a part two like a sequel yeah, like, with some uh disclaimers about the previous yeah. one <laughs> yeah. if anyone I, I, knows uh, ken burns mm-hmm. let us know <laughs> yeah. so i mentioned that you're oneida tell us about your tribe the history culture traditions um and then i'd love to get to hear about your own family stories and history so tell us about the oneida <laughs>
1: Well, I, I grew up on the Oneida Union Re- Reservation during the 1960s, right? So and actually I graduated in 1978. So 60s and basically the 70s, right? So um, before going into the service. What I noticed on the Oneida Union Reservation during the time of the 1960s was that, you know, we were, we were given a, we a lot of army surplus things you know, mm. army, army tents and, you know, army pants and army jackets, I was, which right. I was thrilled about as a child. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the things that I, I knew that I, I would, if I had something to change, to change today, you know, would be, you know, we had a local town dump, right? Mm. Um, and unfortunately, you know, this, this town dump is like, we all kind of went there, you know, as kids to play, and we throw stones I did at bottles. the same thing. And, oh, my God. Yeah, and break break bottles and you know shoot 22s at tin cans and things like Uh that yeah we don't we we can't do those things today yeah i mean to think about the things that we did when you know back then we don't do today we we ought not to do those things today um but uh, uh, in oneida we have uh, where our town dump was is that you know it was over our creek duck creek
2: Mm
1: -hmm. uh, one of our very important waterways on the oneida Indian reservation so this dump was above uh, on like on a hill overlooking this our creek and back then i never as a child i did not understand what i was doing but you know they, they they had taken vehicles there they had you know they had toxic chemicals there i remember seeing drums oil drums full of things you know toxic chemicals um and so yeah it, I, I mean, I remember the dump being a place where we'd go, you know, they would, I go there and sometimes, you know, a person was taking care of the dump, you know, we had fires lit, you know, lighting the, the, the dump on fire and things like that. Wow. And, I, and, I, and I'm going, I'm going like, oh my gosh, you know, they had, like I said, they, they dumped cars there, they had toxic chemicals there, they had batteries, everything that they could dump, they dumped there. That's, that's what was a town dump. And today, you know, um, you know, we have, Understanding that, we'll look downstream of that, we have clusters of cancer, and mm-hmm. I can't help but believe that you know um, it's because of the dump that yeah. all the things that we put in it then eventually leached into our creek and then went downstream. Now through the reservation, by the way, um, you know, so uh, that's one of the things that that bothers me, right? But Indeed. you know, I remember I remember when I was young. You know, we had we had a small Barn. We had some horses. You know, we had, we had some cows. We had the old machinery for like making hay and doing all those things. We had, you know, we go make the little bales of hay and you know, not the big bales of hay today, but you know, the right. small mm-hmm. seventy-pound bales where you can just take it, and chuck it up into the yep. hayloft, things like that. <laughs> uh, so you know, those are the things I remember. I remember, you know, fishing. Of course, now I remember now that's fishing downstream of the dump, and I'm like, oh my gosh. Oh. I- Right, and so you know, we used to say for you know for northern and those kind of things. So we hunted a lot, you know, during our my childhood. I hunted, you know, we had pheasants and you know Hungarian partridge and you know grouse and we went deer hunting and we did all those things that supported us on the reservation, but I remember having a lot of fires during the summer. We had cookouts and things like that. And uh, we had a lot of people coming over to visit and they would drive by and it's, Oh, they come in and they visit, you know, we had back then, you know, uh, we had visitors today. Right. We don't oh, get yeah. visitors. people that just stop by. Yeah. <laughs> people that stop by and, and we don't see that today, you know, so, so true. Uh, uh, when we, you know when i look at my childhood I, I remember that most just that you know um here i don't know i should show you right oh. here this is right here this dog tag this yeah. is a world, this this is a dog tag here it's a world war one dog tag charlie Powell's when i was young we used to barter for things yeah, and and uh, and one of the one of the, the homes that I lived in, you know, we didn't we didn't have running water, but we had a pump house by the barn. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we didn't have running water. We didn't have, you know, we we had an outhouse. That's uh, that's what, how we lived, right? Um, mm-hmm. But this World War One dog take with Charlie Powell's on it, a Native American Oneida World War One veteran, and he was an, he was a, to me when I was young, he was an old man already, right? But I used to—I used to remember taking my bike down the road to to him because my grandma would say, "Dan, go take this pie to Charlie, or go take this, you know, um, rhubarb to Charlie." Yeah. And, and he, he would—he had apple trees, so we would we would barter for apples. We would get apples from him, and then we would exchange things that we grew. Oh, I to love him. it. And, yeah. Uh, it, and it, I, I, I carry this, I, I wear this dog tag for Charlie Even today? Pops. Yeah. Oh, I love because, that. It, it, because it reminds us as Native people, especially Oneidas, because we helped, we helped support uh, George Washington during the, the war 1770, during the time of 1776, 1777, when he was in Valley Forge and he needed, his, his troops needed to be supported by Oneida people hmm. to survive. So we helped them from, from starving during the winter of 1776, 1777. Um, and so um, from Oneida people point of view, right? And from Kotak, we had Oneida Kotakers. But it reminds us that Native people, right? We have been a part of America and supporting America before America was even America. Um, we fought, Oneidas fought in every war. America, before America was America. And uh, it goes to show when it comes back to the idea of why we go into space, why is it important for us to support Artemis? Why is it us important for us to do these things? Because we were Americans before America was America. Dang. You know, right. you know what I'm getting at? So, you know, it makes me very Emotional because I was both in the Army. Enemy, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, but so I support Charlie Paulus for being a World War I Native American veteran. Yeah. Awesome.
0: Thank you for your service, by the way. I am very, very proud of our servicemen and women.
1: Yep, yeah, thanks. Yeah, so I remember Charlie Paulus. Um, I was very lucky. My grandma saved um, his dog tag, and I was able to keep it for all these years. Yeah.
0: What an honor! What an honor! And I know that he's proud of you for wearing that and carrying on his legacy and his memories. Oh. And look at the big things that you're doing now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and then, you know, some other things that we did when around the reservation that I really, really liked when I was little. We used to take um, um, uh, pillowcases, and that was our. Our bag for going around during Halloween. We go from one (laughs) end of the reservation to the other end of the reservation. Right. (laughs) We come back with all kinds of of goodies. Yeah. So cute. How big was the reservation? (coughs) You know. Excuse me. Well, our reservation, our reservation was split um, in half between two two counties: uh, Brown County and Otagame County. Um, So we our reservation now uh, I mean our, our total tribal population I guess around the world, right? Because we're we're everywhere. Oneidas are everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um is that you, you I think that you said you were in in, in, uh, in near Chicago. Right. So right. um I think our, our total population right around seventeen thousand people. But I think on the reservation back then we probably had three thousand people on the entire oh, reservation. Wow. In, yeah. And so I think there was quite a few um, and, and maybe less than that back in the 60s. But, you know, a lot of people mm-hmm. have moved back now because of, you know, casino operations and those kinds of yeah. things. Yeah.
0: Did you move away from the reservation for a while and come back or have you always lived there? I, I guess uh, not you okay. know, Not including from, your time during service.
1: I think from from the fact that if you're if you're thinking about service related, um, you know, when I went into the service, uh, I always used my home as the Oneida Indian Reservation. It never changed. Uh, if you're, yeah. if you're, you know, um, being Choctaw as an example, your your home is always your home. You, you, and, and a Darko, as an example, you yeah you you there always be your home. It never changes. You can change your address, but you're always who you are. You know, I can change sure. my address to you know. Whenever wherever I was in the service, but my home address was always the Oneida Reservation, never changed.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. What's the terrain like there and the environment uh, around the Oneida Reservation area?
1: Well, the Oneida Reservation is split between two creeks: Duck Creek on one side, and then and then um, Oneida Creek on the other. Um, and I think there's a there's a Silver Creek too. But basically, we have a, what we call a first ridge and a second ridge the first ridge and the second ridge is what, that's how we determined our reservation um, with Duck Creek going down the middle of, 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 of that. So um, the, the first ridge was um, more towards the east, the second ridge was more towards the west. Um, and so, yeah, we're basically um, um, a creek in the middle with, with two ridges and that's what uh, defined the reservation. Um, and then, of course, obviously, you know, the Oneida Reservation, from you know the Wisconsin point of view, is that, you know, we originally were a part of and taken part of the the, the Menominee Ho Chunk um, lands. Uh, from what I understand, you know, they were you know our original original inhabitants, uh, Menominee and Ho Chunk. Um, so when we were pus- pushed westward. Uh, Oneida is where we ended up, and it just happened to be that you know Oneida um, ended up in a great place. If we had Mm to talk about removal and and moving west with you know the the Trail of Tears, Um, the you know being close to Green Bay. uh, So when we talk about Green Bay, Green Bay Packers as an example, the Oneida Reservation is relatively close to and bordering on the city of Green Bay. Um, okay. So when it comes to things like casino operations, we're doing well. Um, and, but on the other hand, you know, we've given up. We we've taken. I should say we we have. And I don't know the r- right word for this. If we've been given land from the Menominee Reservation, if we. I know, how that, right? How will transaction gave it to another? And, yeah. Yeah. How how did a transaction happen regarding our ability to be a part of that community right where where before us the delegations were are going to the menominee tribe saying hey we got this group of oneida people that are coming they're being pushed west um and we need a place for them to go and then yeah for, for the menominee reservation whatever their whatever their their whatever the the trade, whatever that, whatever the negotiations were to allow that to happen. I'm not all exactly sure, but I know that there, you know, when we talk about tribes that are pushed West. It was, it was a forced removal. It was a forced thing, Absolutely. but you're for, are forced, you're forced from one area from the East to go to West. And when you, you know that you're on somebody else's land, it's not your homeland. Yeah. And, and 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 you don't really belong there because that's not really your land. Your land, our land, is in Oneida in in New York, right? right? Our, our homeland is New York. Our, that's where, and then New, I'm using New York in in the, the you know the. um <laughs> I'm using New York in the Anglican way, in the European way, right? Yeah. We should not say that our homeland was New York. Our, our homeland is where it was.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It is what it is that's where it was right east right yes um, so but the point is that I, I feel I feel in some way being pushed like we are as even, even though they were my ancestors I feel somewhat obligated to the Menominee people or the Ho Chung people because we're living on their ancestral land you know and I, I feel I bad get it. about that but there's nothing that I could do you know, it's not a part of me. It's a part of what what happened long before I was born.
0: Yeah. I get it. Makes sense. Much respect for those other nations.
1: And- yes. Yeah. Yes. You have to have. Yeah. You, know, you definitely have to have respect for the people sure. that you, you, you replaced. And, sure. Yeah. Sure. So
0: you know, sometimes I think we feel like, oh, that was so long ago. In the whole scheme of things, it wasn't that long ago that all of this happened, and uh, what I do love is today. It seems like there is a so much more harmony amongst the various tribes as far as that respect. And you know, Oklahoma is definitely a total melting pot of all of these different tribes that are living there. That again, were forced into Indian Territory now, Oklahoma. And same thing, where can you imagine? The Choctaws came from Mississippi in an area where the Creek had been living. And so all of a sudden it's like, Hey, get out of our space. You know, it's just, it's sad to think of what those times must've looked like and the unrest and not knowing anything anymore, not having any control. And the chiefs really had to, and the leaders really had to make really hard decisions about we can either stay and fight or we can give in and hope that it'll help keep our members alive a little bit longer. And I would not want to have been the chief back then or any kind of leader. So so the Oneida, and that makes sense more now that you're saying that they were more to the East. I know very little about the Oneida, um, but I've been reading a little bit. It makes more sense as to why that they helped with the battles that George Washington was leading in and that kind of thing at the time. Do you know much about your family history? Your own family
1: stories? I, I, I base almost almost all of what I know on what I call my grandma and grandpa. Yeah, it's kind of emotional talking about that. But you oh know, my, my grandma, gosh, yeah. my grandma and my grandpa are basically who I you know I live with. But they were really my great grandma. My great-grandma. Really? Okay. Yeah, so, so you know, it was a respect thing with grandma and grandpa, right? So even though I know that they were my great-grandma and great-my great-grandpa. Sure. So my great-grandma Amelia Wheelock. Sure. Oh, so Jordan. pretty. Yeah. So she was. Uh, she went to Carlisle. She was one of the. <gasps> um, one of the boarding school pratt colonel pratt's um oh yeah uh, students
0: the military Um, uh, man
1: yeah so you know um i'm very proud of my grandmother um amelia Uh, and unfortunately she died in 1966 on december december 24th christmas eve um 1966 so um I, i knew my grandma well enough to know that uh, she was hurting she was in pain she was a diabetic and um, but she had nine children and so of my of my my family then my gram, my grandma uh, uh, which was one of those nine children um, through the Jordan family uh, you know we, we did things when I grew up things like um, you know, you know, hunting for squirrels and going yeah. and collecting nuts and berries and I was given things again, you know, Dan go by Rena's house and give her some <laughs> sugar because we need flour, right? So we did a lot right. of bartering. And uh, so um Rena, Rena Denny is her name, Rena and Comey and uh, so yeah, we we did a lot of those bartering kind of things. We did um um uh, well, my grandpa ben he was what he was he 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 had horses he had uh, you know had some cows uh, we had chickens you know we'd butcher chickens when we needed to we had collected eggs we had a wood a wood um wood house we uh, we had some land that we we farmed um but uh what he and we had we we had uh, um uh, a garden right so oh, our yes. garden was his pride and joy kind of thing so he <laughs> right. he, was, he was he was a grandfather who taught me he was the one who put dirt in his hand and showed me right Dan this is this is good dirt that's not good dirt right wow. that's how I, that's how I learned my my soil right from my grandpa so he sorry. planted he planted by the moon he planted by original Ways of thinking when you know Iroquois people were, were, were farmers and planting corn and squash and beans and you know the three sisters the corn squash and beans so you did the three sisters, um, and I learned that from. It's amazing, you know, Dan. Including including the fish, including the, putting the fish and the you know the corn beans and squash. So we oh,
0: did that. yeah. What was that like? How did you do it?
1: Well, you 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 would you would um, you had uh, two or three seeds. Depending on what you had available, and um, we had suckers. Suckers would run in the spring, and we had s- cut up suckers, um, parts of suckers for um, the for for the, the nitrogen fixation of the soil. And um, we put the corn, beans, and squash in these mounds, and that's how we would we would grow the um, our, our garden. But there were other things in the garden, like raspberries, that he did. You know, and the rows were straight. Yum. His corn, <laughs> his, his his Indian corn. Right, his Native American Indian corn. And so now we we grew sweet sweet corn too. But the yeah. Native American Indian corn, if they were not straight, if the rows were not straight, if any of his corn had dents in it, he got mad. So he, he 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 was one of these one of these native people who grew grew his corn um to the point where it was like scientific. Yeah, he wow. he 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 wanted his corn straight. He wanted his no dimples in his corn. Um, huh. And so he was one of those native people who could really—he understood about corn. That was that was just—that's that, what I understood about my grandfather most. Was that it. he really cared about his corn? We they had a time where we had this thing that you would turn a handle and you'd put one corn cob in there and you'd you you yeah. uh, you would um grind or... you would shuck shuck the corn. So we okay. we would do that. Um, and, yeah, we did all that when I was little, but these are things that I remember uh, about my grandpa, you know, about his, the way he grew his, his, garden, the way he did the three sisters, the way that he, his corn were, were perfect. He had perfect corn um, and uh, so. Yeah, man, I I bet he had
0: some stories. I bet he saw so much in his lifetime. Did he die in the 60s as well? Like his wife? He,
1: He died. He died when I was in high school. So in 1970s, about 70. I think he died in 76. Yeah. Oh, you must miss him so much. Yeah, I, I do miss him. And, you know, the part of that problem is that, you know, when I'm when you're young and in high school age, you know, everything. Of course. And, it, and of course, my grandpa tried to tell me something and I said, "No, that's not right. And, and of course it was right. But, you know, we, we you know we had an argument, me and my grandpa. And, um, and, I, and I regret that to this day. You know, I know, because, right? Yeah,
0: so many. Yeah, there's,
1: there's, there's things that I wish that I could have asked my grandmother oh, um, before God. she passed. And I'm going like, oh, my gosh, all the stories, all the things that she said and she told are gone. And I don't have the ability to go back and ask her. I don't have the ability to go back and ask my grandpa about this and about that, and about right? things that I now understand better. But at the time, I didn't care about and, and Yeah, I'm we didn't care. Anywhere. And we're, we're so dumb when
0: we're younger. Yeah. Oh.
1: Yeah. And And what an amazing
0: legacy they've left too. I mean, like if they could see you now, which they probably can, doing what you're doing. I mean, I do want to get back to them in a minute, but what inspired you? This just made me realize I didn't even ask this. What inspired you to go into the space study and all of that? Was it was it starting with what you learned with the ground and the dirt and
1: all that? No, it was about I was at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay in an email. Came across our student laptop right and and it says um looking for students to join the rocket team huh. for the university of wisconsin green bay um and i'm going like wait a minute now you know i'm, I'm oneida and i'm thinking like I'm, I'm native but this really was this email blast from the university of wisconsin green bay really wasn't about including native people in the rocket team and so what i did was i took the email and i went to the college of menominee nation and i talked to my to my friend my mentor uh, norbert hill jr who was part of the american union science and engineering society one of the top people there and i said norbert i said you know <laughs> here's, here's what this says about a rocket team in University of Wisconsin Green Bay this is why can't we yeah how us, us how come us native kids can't have no rocket team, and he <laughs> says, he says, well, you can, and I said I said well, where are we gonna? I looked around because this is the Green Bay campus. It wasn't yeah. the, the college, the real college nominations on the menominee Indian reservation, you know, like, like an hour northwest. Okay. And, and so we were, at, we were at the Green Bay campus and all they had was basically a library, library and, you know, it's a couple of chemistry labs and, some, and a couple of, um, you know, um, areas where, where students can study, right? Right. Um, uh, uh, classrooms. And um, he said, well, okay, you can do a rocket team here. And so I started the rocket team, the Five Clans rocket team. And uh, um, we built a wooden rocket. Uh, in the library, on in a the library, library.
2: <laughs> and we,
1: our what we had to do is when we built this rocket, it was called. It was, first of all the rocket was called Gold, Golden Eagle, and that okay. rocket is now in the Smithsonian Institution in Washington D.C. What? Yeah, another another wow, emotional Dad. story. Yes, but, um, you should be. But so anyways, proud. we we started building this this rocket from scratch on this table in the library. So we would be we'd finish we'd finish building the rocket, you know, we cause it, cause it took a long time. And yeah. we pack it up, put it away, pick up the tools, vacuum the floor, because that's what we had to do. Right. Mm-hmm. And the next day, we come back, we set it all up, we'd start building the rocket again, you know, wooden rocket. <laughs> um, and, you know, all glued together, you know, in, in you know, basswood, and we had, we had, you know, like the picture frames, matting, that was our fins that we had under a rocket. And so when it was, we, kids would come by, students would come by, and they'd see us building and, and marking and make, manipulating just rocket from scratch. Um, and they would go like, oh my gosh. And then I was finally able to accumulate a rocket team because the students came by yeah. And it, I don't I don't know anything about rockets. I, I don't really you didn't rockets. know anything. You're just well, knew, that's what they're saying to me. I didn't build a rocket either, right? So right. I didn't build a rocket. They didn't know how to build a rocket. We're building this rocket on the awesome. college nomination library table, right? <laughs> and so and so when the time when the day came, when the day came to launch, um, you know the, the, the people who knew about rockets we had, a, we had a K550 motor, and I know this to this day. Um, ammonium perchlorate is what we use as solid fuel. So we put that solid fuel into that rocket. We put it on the launch pad, and the, the people were going, you know, they were around, you know, the, the ones that knew about rocketry, like this heads-up launch, they expected the rocket to blow up on the launch pad. They expected it to disintegrate on the launch pad it was a wooden rocket made by Indian students who didn't know what they're doing that you know you're crazy Indians you know you don't know how to build a rocket no we put no it we put it, up, we put it on the launch pad and when it launched it launched straighter than all the other rockets oh, whether they were fiberglass no. or it, it went straight up you, there was no waiver. In 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 the in in this in what we call the you know the the stream the output of the you know the, the, engine, the engine blast the, the the smoke that was coming out it was just perfect there was no wavering in it it was no no snaking no none it was straight as an arrow it went up straight as an arrow and they could not believe that it did what it did that Damn. we made it this this wooden rocket on a no library table. And we launched it and it launched perfectly and it did exactly what it would, what it it, would have needed to do, but we made the parachute too big. Right. So when the parachute, when the parachute ejected, it, it looked like it was floating like, 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 a, like a, um, um, you know, like, um, a dandelion, um, you know, the, the white parts of a dandelion and you blow it and it just floats. It was like floating in the air. And it was like, it was, it was not coming down. We made the parachute too big. It was, it was like floating and the wind took it and it drifted, it drifted like- Where did it go? A couple, it drifted a couple of miles. And um, and so, you know, my team's going, holy smokes. It's like, we're watching this thing drift away from the launch site. And uh, so they got in Aww. the car and they went hunting it down. Um, and then uh, what happened was there was a car near an intersection, they were pointing like this, they were going like this, and they were pointing up to the into a tree that was over oh. a lake. And one of our uh, no one way. of our rocket team members, his name is Louis Ortiz, and he climbed the tree. He wasn't supposed to, because it was it was against the rules. You can't climb trees. So he oh. climbed the tree, not knowing what the rules were. He climbed the tree and he got the rocket down. And, uh, and you know, and it didn't go in the lake because it was snagged, the parachute had snagged on a tree over the lake. Um, and that was our story of the, of the golden eagle. And um, yeah. I that,
0: love that this rocket, so much. Yeah, How
1: did it end is, up in the museum? It, it ended up in the museum because, um, you know, Norbert Hill um, was able to convince, um, you know, um, the people in the Smithsonian Institution that was that a wooden rocket that could do that kind of, um, you know, that kind of performance uh, deserved to be in a Smithsonian institution.
0: So, that's amazing! You were yeah. part of that. You led that.
1: Yeah. yeah. You had so, the yeah. idea for that. Yeah, so that was the, the story of the Golden Eagle, and um, yeah. I'm and, so
0: inspired right now. I want to go do something big. I don't even know what it is, but, but that's
1: so but, cool. Like that. That rocket that ability to have a a rocket team in the the College of Menominee Nation was the beginning of of all the other things that we were able to do. We were able to create the the First Nations launch. We were able to create, um, excuse me, um, we were able to build uh, and create the the Tethered Aerostat program. Um, And that was the ability for me to go to the Montana Space Grant. And support the Salish Kootenai Tribal College to to build the bison sat and to launch it on an Atlas V rocket in Vandenberg Air Force Base in October eighth two thousand and fifteen. So That's it was a progression so cool. of those things. Progression of those things that happened to get us in yeah. from what we call it we we'll call an aerospace pipeline. Right. So if you look at students that go into STEM. We want our tribal students to go into aerospace, and we can start with high-powered rockets. We can start with high-altitude balloons. We can start with tethered aerostats and the payloads of those, and and, and uh, um, you know, and, and drones, and then and then and then progressing yeah. to sat- to satellites. So you go from one end to the other, but it's a pipeline of learning and understanding of how to code and how to understand what space is going to do and what you can get from it and what our payloads are supposed to do um, or, or what you can dream of, what you can imagine. If you can imagine things like monitoring caribou, you can put your imagination into a satellite payload, put mm-hmm. it in space and being able to monitor the payload from space or to monitor, You know, to, to have that payload monitor caribou as an example. And I use this in a way like for, how, how do how do how do we get i tech? Um, you know our indigenous traditional ecological knowledge from from the ground from from a from my grandpa understanding soil understanding corn how it grows to that a space a a a a, a, a native elder in Alaska seeing that the caribou were not migrating in the way that they should. Yeah. That they, if they change their migration pattern, and why is that? So the elder says, why is that, that we, this caribou migration is changing, that it, you know, they're going the wrong way or they're eating the wrong thing, or they're going in the, you know, they, they're, they, they're doing something different than that they used to do. Well, from the satellite point of view, we can have our tribal students support the tribal elder and the tribal elder support the students to say, you know what, we can see the, the caribou migration from space you see the caribou migration from ground because that is what you see because you are out there. You see that. So right. what you can do is you can take, take the combination of our tribal students that are understanding what's happening in, from space and that of our tribal elder. And you can push them to get you can mesh them together and having our having our information from space support what we see on the ground. Um, and then I think that is um, kind of where we need to go what's that so so when someone said well why do we want to go to space I think if we go to space for those reasons that we can support what we what we know as indigenous people are indigenous ways of knowing Um, why is it that the polar bear are not eating the ring seal like they should why is the ring seal not there where they need to be with the to feed the polar bears, as an example, why is why is this exchange not happening? Why is this something different today than it used to be?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And Very so holistic. we can we, we can we can ask these questions and we can we can view them from the ground. But now we have the opportunity to view those questions in space to be able to come up with reasonable answers um, and to support our indigenous traditional ecological knowledge from both the ground, our air, and in our space.
0: So well said. Wow. Thank you for sharing about that because it's it really does, again, it, it's bringing it back home. It's very, that very holistic view of it all comes back around. It all comes back together. So was there anything else you wanted to share about your family history or stories or anything like that before I move on? Well,
1: I think there's one more thing that I forgot to mention about the Dust Bowl, which okay. we forget to understand that our local climate change, what we do affects other things, and during 1938, there was a hurricane called the Long Island Express Hurricane, and it came ashore in New York, and it wasn't expected to, because typically the western, the westerly winds push as the as the hurricane comes up the comes up the east, the eastern coast from from the south to the north, it hits colder water, and then eventually goes further to the east and to the north, and then it dissipates out and then it ends. So what happened? What was different in 1938 that caused the Long Island Express hurricane to go ashore? Um, So to to answer that question, what you need to know is during the time that the Long Island Express hurricane reached New York that in, 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 in our Midwest, in the Dust Bowl, that the, the geopotential ridging of um, our uh, or the geopotential ridge of our, uh, or let's say, let's say is the vortex is an example of of a high low pressure, right? Those ridges of a high low pressure, that was going in retrograde. It was going to the west. Mm. So if you understand, if you look at the Midwest and Chicago as an example, if you understand that if you had a pressure system and it was going west, it was going to the west instead of going east, because our, our, typically our winds go from the west and they go to the east, right? But this pressure system during 1938, the time that the Long Island Express was in New York, that it was going to the west. It was actually creating this, this if you want to call it a suction, a vortex a ability, this, this um, anomaly that would move to the west, bringing in the hurricane that's offshore, Right. Offshore in Atlantic to bring it to the west. Yeah. Forcing it, forcing it into the city of New York. And it caused a lot of damage, it killed a lot oh. of people. Um, so the Long Island Express hurricane of 1938. If you, look at the, at, if you look at what happened in 1938 during the time that that hurricane was New York, it was going west. It actually pulled in the hurricane uh, into into shore into New York when it should have gone to the northeast and dissipated out. So what I'm saying, what I'm saying here is that the local climate that we have impacts could, in this case, it, it impacted a hurricane. And you can say, well, how important, how how powerful is our local climate? And I'm going to say our, our local climate is so important that it can affect a hurricane. Um, and so. Uh, we should not ignore climate change. We should not ignore what we do to our land. Like I was telling you about the till, no till. Um, we should not ignore what we do because it impacts, it has a great impact. We just don't see it. We don't see it. You know, people in the Midwest didn't see it. Even, even our, weather mm-hmm. people, our, our weather people today, I've had arguments about this and they didn't realize and they didn't understand what was happening. Until they said, "Oh my gosh, this is incredible." Um, so yeah, and, and that was a story that I forgot to tell about you know uh, regarding the the Dust Bowl. That
0: I'm sure I'm sure glad you shared that with me because I, I'd never heard of that. And you've taken kind of a step back to look at the overall how did it affect everything else type of viewpoint, which is absolutely fascinating. So thanks it for is, sharing
1: it, that. <laughs> it is because you know um, we, we're talking about lives of people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know like I mentioned you know previously about the you know the flood the great flood of 1937. That was all um, you know we, you know, you have to understand uh, how do we make water what where's the rain come from? And rain in one way what it, what happens is that you have dust particles and the water the water um, condensates mm-hmm. on the dust particle. The dust particle is the is the is the, is an like an active ingredient to 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 allow the the rain the the moisture to condensate around that dust particle. So if you have a lot of dust particles in the atmosphere in a time where you have the ability to make where there's water where there's water vapor. You have what, we, what I consider carbon induced rain and the carbon induced rain is exactly what happened in Pakistan. It caused the Pakistan perfect storm The Pakistan perfect storm just recently you know, displaced 30 million people. Right. Um, and that happened to do with, you know, with the higher temperatures, the, the glacier melt, the glacier slip, which is the water that's underneath the glacier that, that cuts underneath the glacier. Uh, and the carbon induced rains from the forest fires to the east from the Europe European forest fires creating this this carbon particularly that floats over the the, 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 east, the the western Pakistan ridge that allows the moisture then to, to, to condensate on that rain that then you got the glacier melt, you got the glacier slip and then you got then you got the higher temperatures and then you have an induced carbon rains and you wonder why we have Pakistan floods the way we did. Um, so these are all connected, and I think that of, of the takeaway point of this, Rachel, is that that your your listeners, if they're not native, right, is about understanding connectedness because I think this is you know going back to Chief Seattle, everything is connected. Um, you know what we do to one, when we look at a web and the strand of the web. When we do to one strand, we do to the entire entirety of the web. We harm one strand, we, we harm the entirety of the, of the web. Um, Smart. So, yeah, it's it's all about everything is connected. And- It uh, is connected. And, and, and when we, we see the Western point of view, they see things linearly, you know, in, in, a, in a straight line and they don't see the circular part that we talk about how things are connected, um, yeah. Absolutely. So much good
0: wisdom here. Thank you, Dan, for sharing with us about your family and about your fascinating projects and the science behind it all. And listeners, be sure to check out the links about Dan's work and the programs we've talked about on my Native Chalk Talk Facebook page. So, Dan, uh, you've given us a lot of wisdom here today, but in closing remarks, are there any words of wisdom you would like to share with our listeners before we go?
1: Um. I'm going to say that what we do matters. So we have to pay attention. You know, we talked about orbital space debris. We talked about you know landers. You know, putting putting dust into the into our space. We talk about you know how we treat our, our ocean. You know, the, the you know the, the pesticides running off into the you know to the, the ditch into the creek into the river and into the ocean and you know our, our damage to the coral and when we see when we see something wrong, we should say something, um, you know, um, to see something, say something, we, everything is connected and what we what we do matters. And, um,
0: yeah, I, I love this, what we do matters. Very well said. You once said, Dan, for most world indigenous peoples, this will be their first opportunity to examine their inherent right of self-determination in space and to project their tribal space sovereignty voice. These are exciting times for our people in business, media, fashion, law, and even space. Now more than ever, we have the chance to show what we're made of. Reach for the stars, my friend. And Dan, thanks for leading the way. Yakuki.
1: Yako. Yeah, cool.
0: Thanks for listening to Native Chalk Talk. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at NativeChalkTalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yeah, Thank you, my friends.